0: from PresentInfluence.com. Each week we talk about presentation skills and public speaking and the tools of influence and persuasion with experts and incredible guests. Stay tuned and enjoy the show. Speaking of Influence is uploaded and distributed to all major podcast networks through Buzzsprout, Buzzsprout is the simplest way to get your podcast started with tons of great resources for new podcasters. You could start your podcast today. Follow the link in the show notes. Welcome to the show and today I have a really cool guest with me, someone who I've seen speak sometimes and she is an amazing speaker. I've also done a workshop with her which was incredible so I was really happy when she agreed to come and be my guest on the show and I know that we're going to have a lot of fun and get a lot of value out of this as well. Now my guest Jessica, she teaches, uh, is qualified in gestalt therapy and teaches gestalt for self-acceptance. She also teaches clowning for training rejection. She teaches this thing called adaptability intelligence, which is really cool. Hopefully we'll get to talk about that as well. She is she was qualified as the best speaker in Barcelona this year in the Toastmasters Championships for public speaking. And I saw her competing and and thought she was amazing as well. She did a really great speech, very entertaining. And we're going to have some fun. So please welcome to the show Jessica Breitenfeld. Hi, Jessica.
1: Hi, thank you so much. Great introduction. It's, it's really great
0: to have you and you know, we met in Malaga last year where I came and did a workshop with you and out of all the workshops that I did, I remember yours the most and you did some flexibility exercises, some kind of humorous exercises as well and I had a lot of fun and I, and I learned some stuff from you too. Where, <laughs> yeah, that's good, right? That's the whole point. So. Where did you first get into presenting and and public speaking, first of all?
1: Well, well, in Canada, there's not much to do in small towns. So I started competing when I was like six in school. And I always had lots of stories because I was about the same height (laughs) with Birkenstocks and wool socks and schnitzel. And I was just this German weird kid in (laughs) small town Canada. And I just started winning the school competitions, the area competitions, and I just loved it. And so I guess that started me and I joined Toastmasters when I was 16. Wow. And I guess learned the art of public speaking.
0: Great. Is, is this something that actually gets taught in schools then in Canada?
1: Huh. That's a good question. I don't know if we actually got, we got taught the structure and yeah. we, we always had show and tell. And so somehow over the years, if show and tell, you learn it by doing. And so Canadian and American kids, I guess, were famous for being overly confident (laughs) in public speaking
0: yeah i mean i don't know what it's like in u k schools anymore, but growing when I was growing up, certainly presentation skills didn't really come into the curriculum at all, and so giving a class presentation was rare if if it happened at all you know maybe you'd answer a question here or then that would be that would be about it so it is great that to some degree that public speaking or some level of public speaking or presentation training is being given to kids at really young ages. I would like to hear about things like that. You're into the public speaking then. What is it that made you want to not just join Toastmasters, Mm -hmm. but to, um, but to keep going with this because you've been doing public speaking for some time. So, and you're also very good at it. Mm -hmm. What does it fulfill for you?
1: Well, we have an expression. Called ham. Do you have that expression, John?
0: I don't think so.
1: So hams are people who like attention. Oh, okay. Oh, so, I always wanted to be an actress, and and I well, Canadian kids don't really pack up and go to California. You know that just seems too too American for us socialist small town kind of track pants <laughs> wearing folks. So that was never really an option. And then just recent well recently my god five years ago I started taking clowning classes and that I think that started the entertaining energy inside of me and I thought wow I can public speak I can entertain I do it in hospitals so I make like sick kids feel happier I help families and just this like entertainer energy that's been living in me my whole life like finally came out the last three years
0: yeah, I, I sometimes have introduced myself to people as a, a bit of a failed actor who went into public speaking and presentations as uh, as my way of fulfilling that need within me to to still perform on, on some level. But yeah, I, I can totally relate to that. And let's let's go first to the clowning. Then, since you since you mentioned that, why mm-hmm. clowning? <laughs>
1: what a silly question because clowning john is the most beautiful art in the world says a clown and in clowning there's this there's humanity this vulnerability this rejection that you see in the face of a clown when they make a mistake that's when people laugh when people recognize in that idiot themselves and that's where like this beauty comes in of like oh man i totally have been there i've I've fallen over my own feet before. I've totally said the wrong thing. I mispronounced things. Look at that idiot showing the world his vulnerability. And somehow that grabs people. And to do that really well, you have to really practice rejection. Because to get people to laugh, you have to you have to show you're good and you're bad, you're ugly, you're clumsy, you're smelly, you're funny, you're not funny, you're serious, you're sad. Like you have to show all these parts of the human condition. And that's what people really love to watch. You know, it's like watching Jerry Springer. I don't know if, yeah. if you have any but, American fans out there. So
0: we're not exactly talking like circus clowning here. We're talking um, about clowning as more of a presentation kind of activity.
1: Uh, you know, I can't even think of it as a circus thing anymore because that is mainstream. And of course, that's what most people know. But when you get down to it, the art of it is what is the, the beauty of it. And of course, you, you can't understand that and nobody would understand that until, until you take a course in it and go, "Wow, well, this is not blowing balloons up for little kids. This yeah. is something much more profound and something more beautiful.
0: I just recently got to record an episode with a, a great speaker and a very humorous presenter called Michael Kerr. And we were talking about some of these some of these aspects, not specifically clowning, though, but uh, but about the flexibility that um, being humorous can give you on stage. But you have to be willing to go there and you have to be willing to to be the idiot, to be the clown, as you say, and to to have to, to invite the laughter. Um, at you you, because it's not humiliation after it's like you're laughing with them as well it's like you're you're getting that that joke and you're getting um, an, an emotional hit from that I guess as well so it's it's a very interesting concept, and I, when you when I saw in the profile you sent me about the clowning for rejection, I think the th- the first thing I thought was like, well, yeah, I guess people are kind of scared of clowns, right? like <laughs> A lot of them have uh, have phobias of it, but that's that's not really where we're going. But the fear of rejection is is one of the things that I think holds many people back in many parts of their lives, not just in presentations and public speaking.
1: Yeah, yeah. Imagine a world, John, where people didn't fear rejection. Like, what would you do if you weren't afraid of people laughing at you, or thinking you're a weirdo or bullying you? I just think it would be a totally different world where, you know what, comparing North America to Spain, I kind of feel like Spain is really open to that. I don't know if your viewers are, are Spanish or in the Mediterranean area, but...
0: Uh, all over Europe and uh, some in America, for sure.
1: In America, yeah. So I have to tell those Americans that there's there's a lot of pressure in America to look cool, and to be cool, and have the status quo. Whereas I find here, especially in Barcelona, it's a little bohemian. You know, people think it's cool if you play the banjo. It is not cool in Canada to play the banjo. You're a 90 year old man. You will not get a date if your life depended on it. If you play the banjo and you live with your parents, but somehow here in Barcelona. You know, there's it's just a different lifestyle and a different mentality of what is success, right. what is cool and what is authentic. And they, they have a much healthier view because maybe the economy wasn't so prosperous as it was in America to, to make the winners and the losers.
0: It's it's interesting. I mean the whole the whole idea of rejection, I think it, it does come down to that you do have to be willing to get yourself to a point where you become rejection proof. And the only way to do that is to let go of these superficial ideas of like looking cool or uh, what people are thinking of you essentially I think mean, that's really what it all comes down to is like don't be afraid of what other people are thinking of you because they're not going to spend that much time thinking of you, uh, <laughs> is, you know, after after they go most people are thinking about themselves and wondering am I saying the right thing am I looking cool or <laughs> you know, we we tend to focus much more on ourselves anyway. But uh, from a presentation standpoint, I think the willingness to be able to to go the full distance gives you full flexibility in being able to deliver a wide range of emotion. And uh, so clowning, I guess, clowning isn't just about being silly.
1: Mm, I'd say it's almost not about being silly, because a clown's a clown is trained to think that he can do it all. he doesn't know that he can't do things, so he goes in there with this enthusiasm and when he fails, we laugh because we see the humanity and his his surprise in his face, and that's what like gets us because like this idiot doesn't know that he can't dance salsa he's trying so hard he looks like an idiot and he doesn't even know it <laughs> and that, that's what it is. He's not trying to be, he's, he's being human. Just like we all think we're really good at a lot of things. And then our partners tell us like, actually, I don't really like that so much or you're not really that good of a cook. We, or you're a little bit fat. You know, we, we have an image of ourselves that as soon as someone chips away at that image, we, we we become like a little five-year-old that is being bullied on the playground. We become very defensive. And if we were just to relax and go, yeah, suck at cooking yeah I'm not the best kisser in the world yeah I wasn't picked for the basketball team like I'm kind of just a normal human good and bad then we could just do so much more because we won't have to try and impress people with our coolness or our our value you know and so a clown doesn't know what that means they don't even know what those social things are that we have and that's the the beauty of it
0: yeah I, I love the idea that you, you go and entertain children in hospitals as a clown. What kind of things do you do there to entertain them as, as a as a clown? Well,
1: uh, I use silly little things and I might even use a wig. I actually have these things right beside my desk. So yeah, very handy. I'm a, I'm a clown for real. And we just go there and we pretend that we don't know that they're sick. We're there for the parents more than the kids because the parents are worried about the financial burdens, about the, the child's health and also their realities. And the kid just knows that they don't feel very good. So we go in there and we pay attention to the parents and we're there to for 10 minutes to pull them out of their worries. Uh, I'm called Dr. Bailarina, so I dance um, badly. (laughs) And that seems to go over well. A 180 meter blonde girl who doesn't speak the language dancing um, is pretty idiotic
0: yeah but that's but that's great and you know laughter in itself is often called the best medicine and and I think it genuinely is and uh, especially in what can be quite serious or uh, sometimes depressing environments to to bring in some, some joy and laughter is wonderful for for somebody for somebody who maybe wants to learn how to increase their flexibility in terms of not being afraid of what people think of them and being able to be a bit more of a clown. What kind of exercises could you recommend for somebody to try to like myself or anyone who wants to do more presenting to loosen up a bit more to get into more of that clown spirit?
1: I recommend you flip your glasses upside down and ah, there you go. Hey <laughs> very nice awesome and i recommend you risk saying silly things like making jokes that might not be funny that just might be corny or i recommend you wearing something that looks weird once john i wore underwear outside of my pants for 4 um. hours on a train to gerona and that's like a small town with really local people and the looks I got were like, so humiliating. It was just like, in my head, I wanted to tell those people that I'm not mentally unwell, that I'm just training my rejection muscles. Right. But I couldn't because that that was part of the exercise. And after having so many, well, men, it was really humiliating that way. Having so many men, like, look at me like that weird, strange, homeless cat woman. Like it really hurt my ego and it really hurt my you know, who I think I am. But after that, I swear I could probably do anything and have less shame. And I don't know, not worry so much what people think about me.
0: What would you say then are some of the things that maybe you've been able to do because you feel more rejection proof now that you wouldn't have been able to do before?
1: Rejection proof. I love that. I wonder, is that a real term? Do we use that on LinkedIn?
0: Um, I think people would know what it is. Uh, I'm sure it's not the first time I've heard it.
1: Rejection-proof, I love it. For online dating, this might be a niche.
0: (laughs) It could well be.
1: (laughs) (laughs) How to make men rejection-proof. Yeah. What was your question? Now I'm starting to think about business
0: ideas. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry, I like that kind of mind as well. Just uh, what what are some of the things that you've been able to do since you proved yourself for rejection that you might not have been able to do before?
1: before uh, maybe Burning Man, doing a lot of crazy things at Burning Man. Not like the drug stuff, really, because you don't have to be brave to do drugs, actually. It's the opposite of that. To be actually brave is to do something fully conscious and aware and feeling the feelings inside of you. That's real bravery, right? So I guess um, I... (laughs) Well, I don't know how PG your audience is, but in it's, Burning it's Man there's not a lot of What's that?
0: It's an adult audience.
1: Adult audience. Well, there was um run naked in the desert at Burning Man. And normally no woman and her right man wants to run naked, right? Because that's just bringing up every issue that possibly could be ar- arisen, could arise. And I don't know, there were 20 of us and we just did it and nobody cared. And then I thought do I think I'm so special? Like there's 7 billion people in this earth. There's 3.5 billion women. This ain't so special. Like, why do I have to feel so attached to it? You know? And so the Buddhist mentality came in as well, like detach from, from the body, get more in touch with like what's going on and the emotions and being in the presence. So I'd say, I'd say those kind of activities or even trying to be a public speaker on Zoom, you know, like that's a lot of rejection. You make jokes and as you all know now, nobody laughs. You don't hear any voices. You don't see a lot of feedback cause you're staring at the hole and that little green light. And so just winning best in Barcelona with humor was pretty hard for me to, to face.
0: Yeah, when you haven't got that audience feedback, it's, uh, humour is very challenging. Yeah, but I mean, a lot of presenting is very challenging without that as well. And it's one of the reasons why I, I kind of like now, like when I do Zoom webinars and things, that we have a lot more uh, interaction possibilities, like people can do their thumbs up and claps and things like that. And it's, uh, it, it helps as a presenter, it helps a lot. And that you can see the comments spots, but for competition, you don't. And, and you're really just looking at the screen. Right, and I I loved your presentation. I, I saw that was uh, I guess that was after Barcelona. It was what the national or what level was that? Oh,
1: uh, after Barcelona, division,
0: division, yeah, And uh, so I really I really loved your your speech for that, and, and it was a lot of fun. And how how do you how do you personally start preparing a speech? What kind of things do you consider in, before you even start constructing it?
1: To be honest, I look for humor. I think, can this story get at least a laugh a minute? I, I heard that once from the president of our prestigious Toastmasters Club. She said, even a serious story about death and, and um, disease needs to have one laugh a minute. And that's stuck in my head. And so I think humor, if you're into therapeutic uses of humor, humor alleviates um, stress and tension. So if you're telling a deep, deep, dark story for seven minutes, you might win, but chances are if you're able to take people on a roller coaster of emotions and get a laugh out of your 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 trauma, if you 're okay with the trauma, you 'll probably do much better because you need people to not cry and hate their lives after your speech right you want them to leave feeling motivated yeah. so humor is key
0: i I agree that humor humor is really important. What what maybe then is one of your favorite stories that you've used in a presentation?
1: Oh, I've got a, a good story where we were <laughs> when I'm in Egypt. And so it didn't quite make it into the winning speech, but we were like in the zoo in Cairo. And if you live in Egypt or you've been to the Arab world, you know there's some racist energy going around there. And so there's this like super tall me, surrounded by 20 african children and we're at the zoo and i swear we were the most interesting thing to look at at the zoo like school groups of children like ignored the elephant and we're like staring at this tall blonde woman and african kids who didn't belong at the zoo because the zoo costs money and in general refugees don't have money it's a hard life and just being thought of as a as a as a what is it, like a circus freak i don't know what was horrifying and extremely funny, actually, afterwards. Yeah. <laughs>
0: so a lot of interesting experiences have been whilst you've been on your travels, yeah?
1: Yeah, yeah I've, I've lived in a lot of countries. I have a broken bone in my back, a tiny little bone, but it's caused me to travel for about 15 years to lots and lots of countries trying to fix that bone. And throughout that, you can imagine lots of funny things and... Funny taxi rides and camel rides and mm, stockings. <laughs> well,
0: yes, I, I, I used to used to work as a, a flight attendant. Like anyone who listens regularly would know this. So I, I worked for like 12 years flying uh, European and then internationally. And probably most of my most interesting stories have come from my travels, and sometimes from working in the airline as well. Although some of those I'm not sure are suitable for the podcast, but but as some of them some of them may well be. Uh, but yeah, they they're great material for for speeches and presentations. Do do you keep any kind of record of your of your life experiences that you can refer to to pull these stories, or, or do you just pull them from what comes to their mind? Mm-hmm.
1: Here journal. <laughs> yeah. I have journal since I've been twelve years old. My, my German mother taught me to write down what happens every day of your life. And so now I have uh, 16 movies waiting to be made of my life <laughs> and all the horrible stories and wonderful stories and yeah, yeah. Um, I want to ask you, John, because since you have worked in the airline industry, I've worked in in restaurants and the hospitality industry my whole life because of my parents, and I, I thought, what do you think are the the similarities between entertaining and serving?
0: Similarities between entertaining and serving. Yeah, Gosh, that's, uh, that's interesting. I I think one of the one of the key similarities is. Uh, to, to me, always keeping your energy good as much as possible. So, you know, in, in hospitality, if you don't have a smile on your face, it's, uh, it, it affects the whole interaction with with every person who you who you're serving and i think the same can be said for for presentations as well is like if you don't look happy or you don't look like you want to be there then it's going to affect the whole energy of everything that you do uh, i did a little video last week about uh, a few weeks ago sorry about curing resting bitch face which is something that i sometimes struggle with you know is like just when you're not really necessarily thinking about things and your face just looks like you've been chewing on nettles or something um that it's uh it's something to try and keep yourself more conscious of because it's essential to be approachable uh, as a as a presenter, as a public speaker, as a, a, a server. In any kind of environment, it's essential to be approachable. And if you're not, then you're going to miss out. You're the one who's going to miss out. But potentially, and if you're a business owner or you're a professional speaker, you're going to miss out on a lot of opportunities if people don't feel like they can just actually come up and talk to you and that you're friendly. Um, I'm, sure there are, I'm sure there are many others, but those are some of the ones that come maybe top, more top of mind for me. What, what are your thoughts?
1: Yeah, well, what you're talking about now, I have something else I thought, but it brings up status. So uh, a server knows how to change their status And so when speaking to a client where you need to lower your status, we know how to do that with our bodies, just like a presenter would, right? When you're training someone and you need to take the uh, observer role and let the people do their thing and you need to be the facilitator, you know how to change your position, how to sit, how to look, how to lower your voice, how to turn your head to give them the power. Whereas then when you need to become the boss and you're the trainer right now, we all know how to like assert ourselves and to exude confidence and so your approachability and relatability and humanness in the service industry is really cool because we probably were doing that before we actually knew what we were doing.
0: Right. Hmm. Yeah, and it's it, to be honest, it's not that people who aren't naturally happy and smiley can't work in service industries because, of course, they can and they do. We've all met them, but uh, but certainly, I think the people who do best, and probably for like countries where tipping is more common, the people who are going to get more tips are the people who give the friendliest, warmest kind of service. Uh, without a doubt, it makes it makes a huge difference, and I do think as well for for speakers and presenters, uh, being humorous is, is Grateful For this particular perspective, because it makes you more approachable we won 't we'll actually trust people who uh, who can make us laugh, and we feel more of an affinity when we laugh when we can laugh at the same things. So when somebody gives us that gift of laughter, I think there's a, a very deep association that we that we make with that, and if you can do that in whatever environment you 're in, if you can find the humor in a situation and just be light and playful with people, then I think you 're going to improve. The vast majority of your interactions and of course it has to be in ways that are appropriate not every situation is appropriate for playfulness but yeah where it is where you can then absolutely do so I think I think it's really essential as a uh, as a presenter to be able to um, to be able to put your energy out to people but know the difference between I think there's this whole thing of um, when you don't want to be seen, when, when you don't want to be seen or when you don't want to be noticed, particularly, we, we can be quite good at keeping our energy in and that like, we can almost become invisible. Like we, if you're, you know, there are situations where that's really useful to do, where you want to blend into a group of people or where you're not the, the highlight. But if you are someone who's looking to get attention, you have to put your energy out. And I think it's uh, it's kind of like shining Hopefully, shine your heart out to the world. You have to be uh, willing to to put out your energy. If you're going to put out energy, put out good energy. I uh-huh. mean, that just makes sense.
1: Yeah, if you can control it. Yeah, yeah
0: I, and I think you can. I think you can train yourself to more or less to to pretty much control what you're putting out there.
1: If you're emotionally intelligent, right? I guess that's the definition of it. Know your emotions, know how to manage them, read the others collaborate and then build relationships on that. So of course that would be the skill.
0: What what would you describe as emotional intelligence then? How do you understand that?
1: Well, that, that was just Goldman's definition of it. So I would say it's being able to know what you feel and knowing how to feel what the other person is feeling beyond the words, the meta conversation. And if you can do that, you can have relationships. If you can't do that, you're always like talking to a wall or someone's talking to your wall and you just never connect. So you feel lonely. So if you're feeling probably lonely in your life, I would say you probably might need some more emotional intelligence in my own experience of when I was feeling not connected to my body.
0: Right. You've trained in gestalt therapy. Mm. Can you tell us a little bit about what that is? Cause I know not everybody is necessarily going to know what gestalt therapy is.
1: Or anyone. (laughs) That's the more appropriate sentence. Maybe. Yeah. So Gestalt Therapy, this Austrian guy, he studied with Freud. And he found that Freud went too much back to childhood. Like, oh my God, so your mom ignored you. And now what? And so Gestalt is on three premises. Premises. What is the plural of premises? Premises,
0: yeah.
1: Premises. And it's about being in the moment. So accepting the reality right now. And although you don't like it, you've been triggered, you don't feel good, you feel embarrassed, and you need to recognize that it's happening right now. All of the trigger might be when you're in grade three and you peed your pants in the school, you know, and now you're being reminded of it, we're trying to work on right now and to make new decisions. Make new decisions based on accepting it right now, and there's a meditative kind of presence in gestalt. It's like, like centering, it's connecting with your body, accepting, not rejecting, not denying, and then building a better collaborative future with yourself and with your relationships. Right.
0: And, and you focus specifically on self-acceptance as part of that. So how, how does that work, and what kind of people do you seem to generally work with when you do that?
1: I work with people who want to have better relationships. Right. So usually, from my own experience, we're critical to other people because we're critical with ourselves if I could accept all my flaws and be okay with, with my laziness and my messiness, I probably wouldn't have a problem with the other person's minor flaws. So once you can accept yourself and go, shh, whoa, I was going to say a bad word. Oh, no. I'm like 80% pretty awesome, 80% pretty generous. I'm kind, I'm funny, I'm relaxed, I'm, I'm balanced, I'm ethical, I'm moral. And then there's that 20% where I am a son of a, right? And I am selfish and I'm focused on um, my needs and I don't care about the global warming. I don't want to walk downstairs to recycle. So I have this theory of the 80-20 human. And once you can accept that you have dark and you have light, beauty and ugliness, snot and glorious shiningness, then you're you're like a human. You're finally a human. And you accept that there's the yin and the yang.
0: Yeah, I I sometimes rally against the um, cult of positivity that often exists in the personal development world. And I've talked about it a few times on my podcast, uh, that uh, we are emotional beings and, and we can't be positive all the time. It's not natural. And if you're trying to do that, you're probably suppressing or stopping other stuff in your life that is going to affect you you know the things we don't pay attention to in our lives we pay with pain and if you're intentionally suppressing a significant part of your emotional life then you are going to pay at some point for that it's gonna it's going to come back and it's gonna bite your ass and uh, and it's not going to be nice when it does right
1: bite your ass i like that <laughs> bite you in the bum. We
0: yeah that uh, but i think it's important you know, with um our emotions are there for reasons uh, and rather than suppress them, I'm not saying we should stay negative, but we should at least process through those things rather than try and ignore them and, and, and work with them to come out to the side. Because like you say, we're, we're a mix of light and dark, but if we don't accept the, the shadow side, then we're ignoring a huge part of who we are.
1: You sound like a therapist,
0: Mr. Ball. You know what? I, I've been I've been doing coaching for about fifteen years, so I guess uh, uh, elements of therapy creep into that. And I certainly read a lot of psychology too. I, yeah, I find, I find it fascinating. I think it's a, a really important area, and I love to know how people tick. And I'm guessing you, because you studied this, you do too. I remember for I remember for the workshop that I came and learned from you. From you were talking about I'm pretty sure that was adaptability, intelligence, something that you focus on. That's kind of what I remember from that. Can you tell us a little bit more about what that is?
1: So you got to be more adaptable, or else you're going to die. On a less extreme Darwin case, if you don't become more flowy, more agile in the workplace you're going to get replaced by someone who's probably younger and isn't so afraid of change. So the point is that it's it's one of the 12 skills of being emotionally intelligent. And Daniel Goldman, he's the one that made intelligences uh, popular like 30 years ago. He mentions adaptability intelligence as just one of them. Other emotional intelligences are coaching and mentoring, inspirational leadership, empathy. And I really believe that adaptability intelligence is, I don't want to say the most important, but if you have all the 11 other skills and abilities, but you don't have adaptability intelligence, you won't know when to be empathetic. And you might be empathetic with the wrong person, or you might be inspiring the wrong team or coaching the wrong way. So this like, I don't know, like this eagle eye, this awareness, this camouflage, this this flowing with stress And reading the situation, not just like reading it, oh yeah, I hear it, not like reading with your eyes, with your ears, with your emotions, even with your smell, you know, like feeling the whole situation is adaptability. And once you recognize it, you don't deny it or repress it. You're like, yep, that's the elephant in the room. I have like two behind me. (laughs) And no more denying it. Now you got to deal with it. And so the better you deal with it, the less stress you have. So the benefits are huge less stress and everybody wants less stress, more happiness, right?
0: Well, you'd hope so. Although I do think some people like to like to wallow in it and uh, enjoy their pity parties, right? <laughs> pity
1: party if there's ice cream. <laughs> yeah,
0: I know. Make sure, make sure I'm not invited to that party to be honest. <laughs> yeah, cross cross me off the guest list for that one. But, uh, but yeah, I think this is uh, a really important area and, um, And again, I think I learned learned a lot from you from the workshop that you did. And and you were actually helping us to apply some of those principles. So can you give us some kind of taster about how to apply those principles of, uh, of that adaptable emotional adaptability?
1: Great. So what we find often is when we're talking to someone, they do or say something or some traffic light turns the wrong color at the wrong time. And we have a choice in that moment. Like positive psychology would say, look at it with gratitude. Oh, great. I have a red light. I can breathe for one minute, but we're humans. We're not really positive all the time or ever. I think that, I think we're actually more negative. We're driven by fear and worry. Unfortunately, as we evolve, maybe not so much in the future, but right now, So if you are in a situation that you don't like, you have a choice. Be angry about it or be happy about it. The positive psychologists would say that or just accept it. And I'd say that's the most neutral way and takes the least amount of energy. It might take a little bit more of the positive energy to see the positive side of just accepting it. Mm. But that's where the benefits lie. You can become Buddhist. You can become very Zen if you just look at the situation and accept it. And punto. it's like, Oh, this is what it is. I hate it. I love it. I can't change it. My, my grandma was a German immigrant to small town, Canada, and she only had one real picture in her house. Uh, she had beautiful paintings, but she had this one quote that she had for 30 years up there. And it's, uh, I'm sure, you know, it. it's from the Bible, I guess, or God grant me the knowledge to the, the wisdom to know the things I can change and to uh, the the
0: serenity prayer, yeah.
1: Yeah, is that what it is?
0: Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah.
1: And I just I my think something wisdom.
0: like, yeah, grant, grant me the okay. you know, grant me the wisdom to change to change the things I can and to accept the things that I can't, or something like that. Yeah.
1: Look at that. My grandma was adaptability intelligence coach and maybe that got stuck in my head. And so now I just see it as like, you gotta accept the way the way you are, the way things are going, the way your relationships are, you accept it. But then you don't end there. You like decide to collaborate. So if you remember, John, there was I'll give you a pop quiz to see if you remember from November. Oh, from this should November, be interesting.
0: November.
1: Okay. <laughs> okay. You have four options. One of them is the best answer. If I want to collaborate with someone and they offer me an idea, actually, why don't you throw me an idea? Why don't you say, Jessica, let's and give me some kind of an offer?
0: Okay. Um Jessica, let's create our own clowning workshop no Uh, okay
1: okay try another one
0: jessica let's let's get together and come up with uh online product
1: yes but i would prefer to maybe work on my product before your product another one
0: Jessica, let's, uh, let's get together and I'll help you work on your product. Yes. Okay, we're, we're getting somewhere. Um, Jessica, let's, um, let's form a pop group <laughs> and enter the Eurovision Song Contest.
1: Yes, and I play the banjo, so I could do that uh, with my clown wig on to get you know, the, the clown groupies to vote for us.
0: Wonderful. I play the bongos, so we could call it bandos and bongos, yeah?
1: (laughs) (laughs) Oh my god, we don't even have to play with a name like that. We've already won, I think. I
0: think we've already won, yeah.
1: (laughs) (laughs) You're a smart guy. You caught on to it, of course. An audience. What answer is going to lead to the most collaborative outcome? No, yes, yes but, or yes and? Yeah, and that's what the workshop was about. Yeah. When, actually, why don't you answer that for us? John, what's the difference between yes and yes and? Yes is a pretty good answer, right? Yeah. What does and add to it?
0: It adds It adds conditions, I suppose. It, it adds a collaboration.
1: Ah, beautiful. Simply said. Excellent. And I always give the example of you have a, a partner, so I'll use my ex-boyfriend example, so... Oh, you wanna, you know, you have something important to tell him and oh I loved spending those years with you, I loved how you cooked, I loved how sweet you t- you treated me, I loved walking on the beach with you, I loved your family, but I met someone on Tinder. Ah, the butt negates everything before that. All he can think about is my butt <laughs> and how I'm not with him anymore, right? So the butt is just such an energy blocker and If you block all the time, you're doing it mostly subconsciously because you're afraid of change and afraid to collaborate because you don't know what could happen. You could fall in love. You could go broke. You could find something out about yourself that you didn't like. So it's easier to say no or yes, but. And so the adaptability intelligence is like training your brain with exercises, which I'll show you some of them later on. Yeah, Training your brain to say yes and more, yes and more, yes and more. And if you do it enough times, as we know, habits get formed. Instead of someone saying, hey, let's do a joint venture about COVID masks, instead of saying no or yes, you're going to say, yes and let's research what the competition is doing first. Yes and let's see what the stats are about the reoccurrence cases. Like, yes and doesn't mean you agree with them blindly, like an idiot, like a clown, right? It means, yes, I hear you. And I'm giving my opinion, and I'm collaborating my energy. Whereas the yes is just, yeah, yeah, like a dog. Dogs don't really you know, collaborate, let's say. They go along with you. They're man's best friend. Everybody loves a dog. But when you want to build something with someone, you need uh, you need a, a human to do that, because they have the ideas and the energy to help you build something beautiful, right?
0: Right, and if I guess if you don't get the yes and uh, in in those sort of interactions, you are you are the primary mind. You are the one who's sort of doing everything, maybe with some support along the way. But then you're the one saying, "Well, you now you do this, you do this." Where you get that yes and collaboration It's like, okay, well, we're in this together now. There's more of a mastermind, is a, a, a group a group mind that can work on this thing. I know from presentation and communications trainings that I've done in the past that you know, the, the word buzz, you're saying it kind of just negates everything that's come before it, because you're only really going to listen to what's been said afterwards. Right. Um, but that, that's always interesting in itself. But the, the yes and thing I've heard before for improv workshops, like people who are learning improv skills. Right. Well, guess what?
1: It's 100 percent improv. It's just that improv scares the bejeebers out of people, right? Improvising is so scary because you're left in front of people without knowing to say, it triggers every insecurity that every human has. So I can't teach you improvisational skills, so I'm going to teach you Adaptability Intelligence by Daniel Goldman, right? Yeah. So essentially it's it's marketing on my side, and you're very clever for picking up. That's exactly where it comes from. It comes from the world of improvisation theater, improvisation jazz, improvisational sports teams. When they practice, they practice, they practice. Yes, and yes, and yes, and yes, and. And then when they're in the game and they can't predict the future, they're trained so well to see the moment and the options that they are extremely adaptable and they flow and agile and they score goals. Yeah. Or they make beautiful music because they've trained the adaptability muscle in their brain through improvising so much that it becomes a second instinct
0: and and I think it is something that does require practice you know I know that um that for a while I didn't do much public speaking when I first came to Spain I, I probably spent about my my first five years here not really doing very much public speaking at all and and I realized that my Public speaking muscles, so to speak, were atrophied and uh, and needed to be lubricated and uh, and retrained and reconditioned, which is why I I joined my local Toastmasters chapter here in here in Valencia, and uh, and it's made you know, it's made a world of a difference, and you know it's got me back on track and re- regularly speaking and presenting again, and uh, and that's just built up more and more and more over this time but um but also i can i can remember having done improv classes that um that were the kind of yes and thing or they're really just putting you on that um you have getting you to go wilder and sillier uh, as you went through it all that you have to train yourself to get over your own self-consciousness about just doing whatever comes up in your head without being judged for it right
1: Yeah. Yeah. Do it, fail, and do it again. And the only way improv works is because there's humor inside, or else that would just be torture and bullying. (laughs) Yeah. Failure. And so the art of improv is you do it with humor and wild ideas and with laughter and making your partner look good and crazy suggestions. And it's practicing, it's like exercising while watching. Casa de papel, right? There's a little bit more motivation because you get some feedback and some benefits from practicing this quite hard skill.
0: Yeah. I, I think more or less like anything, especially on that, those sorts of creative levels, that the more you practice it, the more you get into that kind of mindset of doing it. And uh, You know, I, I've had, tried my hand at writing comedy before, and it's, it's hard. I, I still try and put it into my speeches and stuff, but actually trying to write like a comedic set or a comedic uh, you know, a sitcom or something like that, it's hard and it's difficult to get this, but you do start to get into that way of thinking when when you do that more regularly, when you do that with with a level of frequency. And I think it's more or less the same for everything. And I know that the class we did with you, we did some kind of improvisational exercises that were a lot of fun.
1: Yeah. Are you subtly asking me if we should do it now?
0: I am. I'm I'm inferring that we should move in that direction, yeah.
1: Okay. Well, the simplest one would be simple. Uh, It's not simple. Is yes and. So we can build a story together. Okay. No pressure to be funny or even interesting because it's an exercise. And I'm sure you know, but maybe you could tell the viewers, what's the secret to humor? How do we create humor? You know. Timing. Timing. And timing leads to?
0: Um, Surprise.
1: Yeah, there you go. So timing is because you've been writing it. If if you've never written it, you don't know what timing probably means in a joke. But we know that because we have to actually like, da-da-da, say it, punchline, pause, look away, funny. And surprise is what makes people laugh. And even silly things that aren't funny at all, if you were by yourself, make us laugh. Because it's this childlike innocence and joy and innovation and novelty inside of us that laugh when we see things that are surprising. So improv by itself is just pretty much a couple people having conversations, as we'll do right now, and no pressure to be funny. It just probably will end up being a little bit humorous or surprising. Yeah. I'll start with one sentence. Okay. And you just add on to that with yes and. And we'll do it for about a minute.
0: Okay, let's see how it goes.
1: Once upon a time, there was a boy who walked in the forest every day.
0: Yes, and he walked on his hands, not his feet.
1: (laughs) Yes, and he started to get some weird looks from the locals because he... he (laughs) because he walked on his hands.
0: Yes, and the local cobbler made some special shoes for his hands, but also put horse hooves on them so that he would make a clip-clop sound when he walked.
1: Yes, and he became the the town tourist attraction. People from far and wide would come to see Horseman, as he was called.
0: Yes, Yeah, and sometimes he was known as Clip-Clop to all the little children, and he would regularly put on a gymkhana for the town.
1: (laughs) Yes, and he one day noticed a very beautiful dark-skinned woman who was visiting to come see Clip-Clop Man, and he flashed her one of his upside-down smiles.
0: Yes, and... She would only move around by doing forward and backward roles.
1: He, yes, he was intrigued by this also very unique movement woman, and he thought together, could you imagine the kind of kids they would have? So he asked her for her phone number.
0: Yes, and she tapped it out. <laughs> so that he would have to count the numbers.
1: Because of that day and that tapping and that weird eccentric chemistry that the two people had together, they they ended up dating for years and got married.
0: Yes, and they lived weirdly ever after with with the strangest looking children you could imagine.
1: One named Clip, the other named Clop. <laughs> that was fun. Yeah, nice, very nice. I like
0: it. Good, good creativity exercises, uh, and it does get you thinking. You do, and even just doing that is thinking. I you know this, what I'm saying is going to be really stupid, but it's like, well, go with it and let it be stupid, right?
1: Yeah. And so there's something that pixlr does. The the movies, yeah, like Toy Story. Yeah, they and my colleagues in the improvisation world, she works for them and she essentially like brought this to them like 20 years ago. And it's just a very simple concept of the story spine. Have you heard of it, John? No, I don't think so. Yeah. So when people are writing a speech, you ask me when I create my speeches, this kind of ties back to that and the improvisational world. We could do a demonstration of it because you obviously catch on very well and you're a writer. It's essentially once upon a time and every day that, dot until one day when the problem arises and because of that, because of that, because of that, because of that for an hour and a half until the climax is over and there's a solution to the problem and they live happily ever after. If you're a typical Hollywood movie. Right. So you can do this exercise with teams, with your wife, with your kids, with yourself about your career. So John had a, a, a podcast, and, be, and every week he interviewed someone for that. And then one day he interviewed a TED speaker who had 5 million views. And because of that, TED talker, um, John became this. And because of that, John met this person. Because of that, John, 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 John. And that's how John became the number one podcaster in the world and lived happily ever after in Valencia with his 12 kids.
0: I like the sound of that story. <laughs>
1: yeah. It's like a coaching exercise. Imagine your future using story spine and the idea of improvisation and the adaptability. If this happens, this happens. It's, it's A happens, B happens, right? But yeah. in a more fun in a, in a funner way. It makes a lot
0: of sense. And, you know, I just last week released uh, an episode, I remember last week when this goes out, but I just last week released uh, an episode with uh, a guy who's a a professional storyteller. He's uh, won the Moth Story Slam 48 times. He's going for his 49th and 50th. He's won their Grand Slam six times. And we were talking about story construction, but I don't think we actually got onto this story spine thing. So that's fascinating. And I uh, really always appreciate stuff that helps with the storytelling because it's a, a vital part of presentation and public speaking. And I think it's actually really good just for for life. You know, we, we often, just with our friends or in social circles, we'll tell stories and if our stories are really bad (laughs) then it's it's not (laughs) going to be very entertaining but if we can tell better stories then it's going to be much more interesting but i i love the idea of using that as a as a coaching tool as well Mm
1: -hmm.
0: that's that's a really good resource so thank you thank you for bringing that up there was a there was an exercise that i remember you doing in the workshop that i attended from you which was a prop kind of exercise where it was like you had items for for people to pick and you had to create a little presentation around that I think that's right
1: oh I recall that one yes I I did that one yeah so that's a that's a, one of the most famous ones for team building and brainstorming collaboration often for marketing teams but the process works. It trains the muscle, right? So it, you have an item, so you grab anything. So, well, this is embarrassing, but I have this in my room. And I don't know what it is. It's a decoration of sorts. Right. And so the object would be to present this as something that you would want to buy, the reason for it, create a jingle for it, a slogan for it, and the benefits of it. So right. you have five minutes as a team or a new to think about what this could serve as right?
0: uh, the purple cone
1: the purple cone yeah and uh-huh. it could be lots of things it could be when you're bored and you're just staring at the gym at the cute guy and it's to, to relax your neck muscles right you could put it on the bed you could read with it you could pretend it's a new mobile phone so people are jealous of you you could um, you could practice lifting weights with it yeah so Think 20 to
0: use this object. I can think of a sexual, so <laughs> I've already lost it. Yeah, I guess that one, uh, you might get some interesting uh, some interesting suggestions. But, uh, yeah, it's a, it's a great exercise just to get you thinking of possibilities and start thinking that uh, that's a, a definitely an improv activity. And I remember you probably seen that show, like Whose Line Is It Anyway?, where it was like an improv-based show, right? And regularly... Right. Ra- 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 yeah. Ra- 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 yeah. I love that show. And uh, I don't, is it still on that? I don't know. Maybe somewhere, but um, re- reruns, I guess, of old series regularly, they would have a prop segment in there where people would have to get silly with props. And you know, usually people will do the most obvious ones, of course, in there because they're trying to do as many as possible, but it is a, a really cool exercise and one that's, uh, that's very useful to try, but I can see how it would work in marketing teams as well. And uh, that, that's, that's fascinating. Who, who do you generally tend to, to work with them when you, you, you teach like some, some presentation stuff? Do you teach to corporations, marketing teams, and things like that as well?
1: Yeah. I, I don't really call it what I'm talking to you about because you, you have to sell them what they want. And if they want marketing skills or public speaking confidence, then that's what the title of my workshop is. So I, I've taught at Coca-Cola and La Caixa in Spain and Damn the beer brewery place but I go in there with what they want and what they want is storytelling. So I do six hours on storytelling, but as soon as I start, I teach them adaptability intelligence. I teach them the mental mental mentality, (laughs) the positive mental mentality. I'm saying that wrong. I hope you edit this. Uh, (laughs) Mind frame, the mind frame of yes. end. And I teach them that it doesn't mean you're agreeing with the person's idea. It is a tool for collaboration. And when you collaborate, you get more things done. Your team grows. Your stories grow. Everything flows better. And so we need to agree collectively that we are going to say yes and energetically for the next six-hour workshop. I'm going to show you the fun of it, the benefits of it. Do you agree to do that? And because I do it with humor, of course they want to, to play along and laugh. Everybody wants to laugh. Yeah? And it's like putting medicine with honey or sugar. They don't know that they're learning a really important emotional intelligence skill, yeah. but that's why they're getting so much confidence so quickly because the skill forces you to fail. You're going to fail lots of times. You're going to say something ridiculous about this, right? Ridiculous. <laughs> and you're going to have to deal with the rejection, the failure of taking a risk. And if you have that skill, Fail, do it
0: again, fail, do it again. What is
1: innovation all about, right John
0: yeah there this is uh, again this is, this is something that came up in in a recent uh, podcast conversation, but um, the how professional comedians create their sets they don't just instantaneously come up with the funniest jokes, yeah. and uh, we were talking specifically about Jerry Seinfeld and, and his sort of strategy of you name know, will go and uh, deliver his jokes and keep keep the ones that work or you can re re rejig them and and bin the ones that don't and and this is how you create success you have to be prepared to get up on a stage in front of an audience okay probably not going to want that to be filmed uh unless you're really open to your creative process being exposed but um even if even if it was it's it shows the level of commitment that has to go into that and how much you have to really be okay with you know someone not laughing at your joke is rejection it kind of brings us back around to that and uh in a difficult part but if you really want to master that and get the laughs you have to go through the some of the stuff that doesn't work before you get to the stuff that does and that you can cut away all the crap really and get focused on the the, the gold stuff
1: it's like in dating you have to kiss a lot of frogs to find your prince
0: i've been told that
1: i've been told that Well, it's the same thing. you got to tell a lot of corny, terrible jokes to find some good ones. I only have three jokes. (laughs) In my 37 years of living, I've only memorized three jokes. And if you put me on the spot, that's all I got, right? But um, I've told told a lot of bad jokes that don't get laughs at Toastmasters meetings, right? So, you know, I only want to face that rejection once and then... (laughs)
0: It's uh, it's interesting uh, because uh, a lot of people will always say, and I, I hear this in Toastmasters as well, that they can't do humour or that they're not funny. Mm,
1: it's true. <laughs> <laughs> Half the Toastmasters are, well, they're there because they really lack that that, that flow or that extroversion that, that a lot of us, I don't want to say we're born with, but there's definitely uh, in Toastmasters, we're the world's biggest organization for public speaking skills. A lot of people really need to learn that. And a lot of us, I presume you as well, if you went into the hospitality industry, mm-hmm. were kind of born being a little bit maybe funny or a little bit charming. Am, am I implying, am I assuming too much? Were you an introverted child?
0: I, I am really introverted, but but ah. yes. Uh, but yes, I, I do, I, I would say socially more than anything else, but I'd say my presentations now as well um i bring the humor uh, i've always gone for for the funny and i've always looked to try and entertain people but um socially i'm very introverted
1: really
0: people wow. people are usually surprised with this because i i really put myself out there but it's mm-hmm. it's been hard work and you know i appreciate it. it's um I think there's a lot of introverted people in public speaking and uh, the, sometimes it's the people who stand out more are oh, uh, the more extroverted. But I think you can get around that if you're willing to, uh, willing to step in and lean into your discomfort and move out of your comfort zone. Mm.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Mm-hmm. So I don't see it as a bad thing. I think as a speaker, as a presenter, as a coach, as a trainer, I can be very extroverted, but in socially, personally, uh, I'm not super introverted, but I, I'm more on the introvert side.
1: Huh. It brings up the interesting thing and in, in what introversion and extroversion is. Mm. I, fascinating to see if, you know what? I do know a very, yeah, Now it's just popping in my head. A lot of very successful public speakers I know are pretty terrible at parties, which is surprising. And then it's just a, yeah, it's not the same. And I didn't really realize that you're bringing up good points.
0: Thanks. Yeah, it's, um, for, for me, it's really a case of do I feel comfort, comfortable enough to fully express myself? that that for me is the difference between whether i'm being introverted or extroverted but i mean i know that a lot of times it's defined as how you best recharge do you recharge better on your own do you recharge more your energy with other people around you i i'm somewhere in the middle but i you know i i have to have some time that's just quiet time for me mm-hmm. but i can't be away from other people for too long either because that that affects me too. Like, if I'm alone for too long, um, then I'm not not that introverted. So I probably fall somewhere on the scale more towards introvert. But when it comes to presentations and uh, even just doing something like this, I think you have to push yourself out there and just get out of that headset. But even now, I think if you watch some of my (laughs) earlier podcasts, you would see I was pretty... (laughs) quiet <laughs> my, my first my first podcast episode you probably wouldn't even no maybe not the first one but the second one where i actually had a guest an interview guest you i almost didn't need to be there but i mean there were there were several reasons for that but but i realized that you know i was going to have to step my game up but it has been a progression to now where i feel that okay well it's it's my show and i enjoy chatting i'm people on who i enjoy speaking to and so that makes that means i can be comfortable i can be myself in my on my podcast which is which is how it should be so here I don't feel the need to be introverted if that makes sense
1: but what I'm hearing is that it's comfort That's-
0: yeah it is you know I'm, I'm aware that um you know when I when I've done like in Malaga when where we met I was competing and um, into two competitions there and I know that um you know, even, even now, you know, even though I've been doing this stuff and, and I've been doing online, presenting, coaching for a long time, but um, getting up on a stage, still get like uh, the butterflies, the heart pounding, you know, all, all that kind of stuff. I don't really get that in my local Toastmasters group or in environments that I'm comfortable presenting in. I, I just get on with it and feel very natural. Does that make sense? Can, can you relate to that?
1: I, I can relate to the the butterflies. I was hoping they'd be gone by now, after all these years of looking like an idiot. <laughs> but unfortunately, they're um, they're still there. Yeah.
0: Yeah, but you know, a lot, a lot of a lot of presentation trainers I've heard will say, you know, that that that's a good thing that they're always there because. Um, it's part of your performance energy and uh, so long as you channel it into you know this isn 't about you, this is about them uh, that you can transform that and and um if you like convert that energy into your your performance energy or what you deliver out to your audience so I think it's it can be a very useful thing to have it it 's not uh, not really a negative
1: you know what I just remembered that we 're trained I know this apparently that Excitement and anxiety in the body is actually the same thing. It just depends how you frame it. And so that's very interesting. You can see it as like, oh, I have the butterflies because I'm nervous or I have the butterflies because this is going to be so much fun and this is what I love to do. Yeah,
0: and and you know what? I mean... I remember my very first ever public speaking paid training that I went to, and that was the thing for me. Like I was terrified. I mean, like like heart, my heart was beating so fast that I thought it was going to bounce out of my chest, and uh, so I was absolutely terrified when it came to like giving the final presentation in front of the whole group. And um, and yet somebody took me aside there and said, you know, that that this same thing that you know the. Can you? Do you know for sure whether you're actually excited or whether you're scared? Because it's the same feeling. I thought, you know what? Yeah, I I can't really tell because I you know I can imagine that this is how I get when I'm excited. I get trembles. I get you know if I if I'm excited enough, yeah, absolutely, it's the same feeling. And so, I thought, well, why not just tell myself that I'm excited instead? And and that was I think transformative, and probably the moment where I fell in love with public speaking I because I just made that mental shift of. I love this. This is exciting. This is uh, this is fantastic. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I, I think that has that has a lot of value. And sometimes just a simple reframe like that can be helpful. is is uh, It's interesting because since then, you know, I've learned a lot more about how we um, sometimes determine our emotions by tuning into our physical state. And so, um, you know, we don't necessarily consciously notice that we're doing it. But if someone asks you how you're feeling, that that is something that that we do. That we yeah we we check automatically do it we check in with how we how we feel in ourselves, right. and you know not just it's not just the emotional it's the 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 physical sensations as well that guide what we're choosing to feel about ourselves that even like even like your posture has an effect on your mood and your emotional state and um, things going on in, inside your body that uh, can have an effect on you as well that uh, that come out through what you're doing. But we don't always consciously have awareness that that's going on. That's
1: why I just did a coaching exercise yesterday. I was in a mastermind thing. And she says, I want you to tell the story from your head for one minute and then tell the story from your gut. And crazy different story. Of all my years, I've done 700 hours of group therapy. I've done a lot of crying and a lot of talking about my feelings and listening to others. And that's the first time I've done that exercise. And there was no criticism when I spoke from my gut. It was really like, oh, I'm looking forward to this. I feel excited for this. I feel, I feel, I feel. Feel cannot criticize. The brain is the one that's like, you're going to make a mistake. You're going to look like an idiot. You're sweating through your shirt. Here is just like, I'm talking about what I love. People are going to really resonate with this. I, I look good in my shirt today. I'm sweating with excitement. You know, it's, and so, if you can tap into and drop into your gut, apparently it's three centimeters below the belly button, whatever the hippies call that area. Yeah, that's like where the where the life, where the flow, where the energy comes from. And I think if public speakers, if we could train ourselves to do that, rejection would would float away.
0: Right. It's maybe it's one of these energy chakras or something, that... Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, I, I'm not sure I have one I went for an x-ray and they couldn't find it but
1: oh <laughs> uh, you were reborn so enlightened that you didn't need one of those chakras that's
0: quite possibly the case, quite possibly the case. Uh-huh. but yeah no I, I agree with that I mean from neuro-linguistic programming training and I guess you would know something about that that uh-huh. they teach about the sort of um, learning styles and that comes with like the um, the visual the auditory the kinesthetic and the uh, auditory digital and that uh, I I mean, I think maybe we're more talking here about the difference between the sort of inner dialogue, the auditory digital, and the kinesthetic, the really feeling part of stuff, which does relate more to, like, the in-your-head or in-your-gut. in, in your gut. I guess it's more like kinesthetic is more like uh, we tend to focus that more around the general stomach area, abdomen area. But, uh, but yeah, sim- simil- similarly, very much so in the, the different feelings. But uh, as, a, as a speaker and presenter, for sure, you need to get into that feeling state because, if you don't have emotion in what you're delivering, it's just data, right? And data in itself is boring, and data in itself isn't memorable.
1: You know, no, the one thing. Pardon me, but this is such a, like a beautiful nugget of information. I didn't create it, but it's like I tell all the people that I train. It's like, what are you here for? That you can't send in an email. You know, you cannot send human emotion in an email. Emoticons emojis can only do so much right and so I think the number one thing when we're training our people is like teach them how to express themselves and fluency and confidence trump grammatical precision perfect timing right Ted talkers they are not trained professionals They are people with ideas that matter right? right whereas in Toastmasters we're trained to move our hand perfectly to to pause three seconds look at the audience we're much more technical I find than TED speakers are, and so it would be great if we, people who compete like you and I, if we could lend that a little bit more, make Toastmasters a little bit more human.
0: Yeah, and and hopefully, hopefully that is the the case. You know, I've been uh, encouraging my my members, particularly here in Valencia, to to check out uh, the the book Story Storyworthy, which I, I talked about a few times after having interviewed Matthew Dix as well, because because of all the nuggets it has for telling stories and really being emotional with them as well. Mm-hmm. And When you're talking, I was thinking also about, um, you know, who Edith Piaf is, right, the, the famous French singer, lot, I mean, long gone, but if you've never listened to a recording of her sing, you know, it's the thing to do it. But the reason why... She was so famous why people would travel to go and see her. It wasn't because she was the most technically brilliant singer. It was the emotion that she put into her music. I, I would maybe even say, well, maybe Nina Simone was a, a, an incredibly technical singer as well. She was amazing, but but also with her, the reason why I think so many people still like to listen to Nina Simone songs is the the emotion, the raw emotion in that music, that that like you say, trumps everything. It's uh, that's what people connect with, not with information, not with technical perfection, but with real emotion and, and real people, authentic emotions, right?
1: this ties back john to when you asked me an hour and 20 minutes ago what clown is right, right. people connect to human emotion the clown has no technical skill in dancing he, he he messes up his magic tricks but the emotion that he expresses on his face with just a little movement of shame right we're trained to show the emotions in our face we spend hours and hours practicing what shame and embarrassment look like what is gladness what is happiness what is ecstasy how do you show that on your face and your body language and that's what humans love you, you think you might hate clowns because their faces are scary but everyone loves humanness right
0: yeah and you know one of the i think one of the most appealing things about clowns for many people is that Uh, element of pathos that's in there as well which is uh, which is really important in communication in any kind of presentation and you know go back to the earliest days of uh, presentation skills and Roman oratory and that pathos is one of the uh, most critical parts of uh, considered one of the most critical parts of presentation. Um, So I love this and and I'm aware that we've, uh, we've talked a lot but it's been I, I really enjoyed this conversation and, and I hope that you have as well. And, um, and I, I want to come now to some of the questions that I like to ask all, all my guests because you, you gave me some, uh, some interesting answers. Um, so before, before we get to that, actually, I should ask you, where can people find out more about you?
1: Well, there's a thing called LinkedIn. Yeah, so if you're interested in some of the, the stuff I talk about, I love posting, so that or my website is my name, which is jessicabreinfeld.com. It's the only name in the world, good German name. And I also do a lot of Facebook stuff, and I do a discovery session. So if if you think some of this crazy gestalt, clown, rejection, public speaking appeals to you, uh, I think it would be fun to dive in a little bit further and see what's blocking you.
0: Excellent. Well, I'm definitely going to include those links in the show notes so people can come and, and check you out. And I and I encourage you to do so. I mean, I, I learned a lot from you in a very short space of time in uh, in Malaga and today as well. Really, there's been some some really great insights and I've I really appreciated this. I asked you for for a book recommendation and you gave me a very unique answer.
1: Your journal. I think I think your life is the most interesting thing that you should be paying attention to. You know, I watched a movie last night, and I think I cried 90% of the time. It was about orphans dying. Oh, my God, the Cider House rules. And it was so emotional. But then I'm back to my regular life, right? And if I make my life interesting, then I always have stories. I always have emotional roller coasters. I have love. I have hate. I have trauma. and, uh, And the human resilience triumphs it. So it's like the best thing you can read is really you and your emotions and your life I think.
0: Now I, I also asked you if, if you had any uh, resources that you could could share and you did mention a, a pdf that people can can get from you.
1: Yeah it's full of activities where you can get people to brainstorm and get them at the beginning of your meetings to adopt the mentality of yes end. So it's done with a short little kind of mm, icebreaking games you don't call them icebreaking games but you would just say hey this is for agility and adaptability and almost everyone in a corporate setting will say yeah that's a good idea to to warm up before we brainstorm and it creates some laughter laughter breaks down barriers trust is generated amongst the group and so pretty much guaranteed if you use one or two of these once in a while it'll be better meetings i'm happy to share that with
0: you yeah great where where can people download that from
1: yeah, it should be on my on my website, and also if you do put the links up there, I can send it to you because the the website thing. To be honest, I I'm having glitches and Fiverr hasn't responded back to me yet, so I'm I'm not a hundred percent there yet. Probably yeah. Okay. I'm scared. So um, if someone
0: maybe, connects with you on LinkedIn or whatever, you'll send it to them. Yeah. Anyway, yeah, yeah
1: that'd it'd, be, it'd be fun anyway. So.
0: Okay, one well, one thing I do always like to ask, and we're gonna we're gonna wrap this up to to a close, is some final thoughts for you to leave with our audience.
1: Oh, final thoughts? Oh my God, I've talked so much. Um, but remind me what I wrote on that piece of paper.
0: Because <laughs> I have to I have to bring it back up to. You, uh, <laughs> but bear with me; I can do that. Uh, you said. Uh, if you don't know yourself, you're living someone else's life. Speak your stories, tell your feelings, be brave, be you.
1: You said it. Yeah. Yeah. Be you. I don't know. I bought a new hashtag. You don't buy hashtags. I bought a website called how to be And I think I'm just going to go for like how to be you on stage, how to be you in the bedroom, how to be you in your life. Because Everyone's so afraid of being themselves and showing their nerdy, like, ugly, smelly, 20% dark side. And I think you gotta do that your whole life. That's exhausting. You might as well show the 20%. See others 20%. Go have fun. Go dancing. Go fall in love with someone else who has a 20% terrible side, too. And just, like, relax. You know? So be yourself. And don't stress too much. Stress yeah. with stress.
0: I love, I love that yeah i often say everyone's trying to live their best instagram life and put this put this uh projection of perfection out there but life is a lot messier than that nobody has that perfect life and uh, trying to project that and to hold that image up is is gonna be a major source of stress for you so I, uh so i really like that and i like what you're saying uh, jessica i i feel like we could talk all day but uh but I, <laughs> we we need to we need to keep some some time limit but it's been a really wonderful conversation it's been really enlightening you've shared so much great value I really appreciate it I recommend if anyone gets the chance to to go and see you speak live or online that they take it because you're a really engaging and entertaining pub enta- entertaining public speaker and I've really enjoyed your presentations in the past so thank, thank you for that and for everything that you shared today please go and check out Jessica Breitenfeld and tune in next time we're going to have another wonderful guest on the Speaking of Influence Podcasts. See them. I hope you've enjoyed the show. Please, if you're on YouTube, make sure you like and subscribe for future episodes. Lots of great guests coming up and some really exciting new series, including continuing the focus on humor and comedy in presentations. I know that you're going to want to be tuned in for that. If you are a podcast listener, please make sure that you have subscribed. You can do that through Apple or any major podcasting network. And you can certainly find us on Buzzsprout, where we host our podcast as well. I'll look forward to seeing you next time for another show. If you have any feedback or you're interested in being a guest or having me as a guest or anything like that, contact me, John at presentinfluence.com or come and find me on LinkedIn or other social media platforms. I'd love to hear from you. Take care. Bye.